0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 87, my interview with Lindsay Hansen-Park. I'm really excited for this episode because Lindsay is someone whose work I have been consuming for years, like I think probably the better half of a decade. Um, And I really admire uh, what she does and, and um who she is. So, so I was excited to interview her and I'm really excited for you guys to hear that interview. Um, before we get into it, I, um, as per usual, I like to give you guys, you know, just a little news, a little update. Um, it's been, as you know, a crazy, a crazy beginning of the year. Um, I know it's, it's, I'm not saying anything new. Um, I just, I feel weird to not acknowledge it. Um, in my, in my personal little, little, um, little bubble in my own home, um, I have been just trying to focus on continuing to make things. Um, I've been working hard on the songwriting course, which, um, Actually, maybe this is something. I think I can fairly officially announce that the launch date for that will be April 1st. Um, I'm so, so excited about it. It is just turning out um, pretty much exactly the way that I wanted it to, which um, I feel really good about. Um, I'm in the middle of working on module six out of nine this week, Um, planning to do module seven and eight in February, and then module nine in March, and then um, release the course in April. And it's the kind of thing that um, I really think it will be um, a great course for beginners and also have plenty of advanced stuff in it as well. Like it's it's the kind of thing that you can sort of um, adapt to, uh, where your skill set is. So if you're a person who has, who has always wanted to s- try songwriting and to get better at it, um, keep your eyes on my, uh, <clears throat> my mailing list announcements, because I will be offering some great discounts right at the beginning. Um, and if you're a person who has, has written a bit and wants to kind of improve and broaden your skills, um, you should keep an eye out as well. Um, Other than that, I've just been doing lots of album planning. So um, uh, in case you missed me talking about this previously, I I wrote a new album in June um, and have just been doing a lot of work to kind of get it ready for release um, late in 2021. Um, Lots and lots and lots of work to do. So um, I've been I've been working on that and thinking a lot about the visuals and kind of how I want to put everything together. Um, I think I'll be talking more about that on my mailing list as well. So if you want more details, make sure you're on there. You can you can get on there at emvocals.com. Pretty much sincerely, any page of my website has a, has a mailing list to sign up somewhere on it. So that's what's going on with me. I hope you guys are doing okay. I hope you're, um, you know, still feeling like motivated in whatever it is that you're wanting to work on, um, you know, and you're, you're, you're doing the things that you like to be doing as much as possible. Um, so now I'm going to introduce you a little bit better to today's guest, Lindsay Hansen Park. Lindsay Hansen Park is an American Mormon feminist blogger, activist, podcaster, and the executive director for the Salt Lake City-based nonprofit Sunstone Education Foundation. She is the host of the acclaimed Year of Polygamy podcast and the Sunstone Mormon History podcast. And I'll just tell you guys, this bio doesn't even begin to get into um, the things that I think make Lindsay so interesting and so creative and, and, um, a gift to Utah and, um, a really cool person, um, you know, by truly any measure. So, um, I'm excited for you guys to hear our conversation and get to know Lindsay better. And yeah, that's it. Here comes Lindsay. Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Today's episode of Artifice is brought to you by Skylar. Skylar is an LA based clean fragrance brand that uses clean, conscious ingredients to craft beautiful, innovative, and hypoallergenic scents. And all of their products are vegan and cruelty free, so you can feel good about what you put on your body. I am super sensitive to smells, almost everything gives me a headache. But in the two years I've been wearing Skylar, I have loved it every single day. My fragrance of choice is Willow, but Skylar's best-selling scents are Vanilla Sky and Salt Air. And all of Skylar's fragrances are made to layer, so you can experiment to find the exact combination of scents you love. In addition to gorgeous perfumes, Skylar has lotions, soaps, deodorant, candles, and more. Head to skylar.com slash artifice, that's S-K-Y-L-A-R dot com slash A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E for a 20% discount applied automatically at checkout. Enjoy! Um, okay, well let's get started. So I'm here with Miss Lindsay Hansen Park, which is exciting because I have spent hundreds of hours listening to your work. Um... <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: um, (laughs) That's what I always say. I'm so sorry. I
0: love it. I love it so much. And one thing that I really like about you is you're so creative. Like, um, I think your, your main, like, I don't know that maybe a lot of people know that you're like a fine artist too. Um, but you're, you're so obviously a creative, um, creating so much and just doing so much and also just like the way that you think and use your mind is really creative. So you're a perfect person for this
1: podcast. Well, thank you. That's very <laughs> nice. Normally I'm on the internet getting burned down, so this is yeah, nice. Yeah, no, I know,
0: I know you get you you it's that same like it's so much courage and so much kind of creative bravery. And and I'd like to talk more about that. Um but the way that I do my podcast is I always start um by kind of talking with everybody about their childhood and sort of maybe what they were like as a creative child and then kind of talk about like how you developed your creative mind. So I would love to know what were you like as a creative child?
1: Probably as obnoxious as I am now. <laughs> I, um, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, born and raised, very Mormon family, very Mormon community. Mormonism was my entire world and yeah. informs everything I did. And so my first exposure to creativity was through Mormonism. So, yeah. you know, I had grandparents who were creative. My my, grand, my maternal grandfather, uh, the apocryphal story in our house is uh, when he was five, he got into an accident. He was hit by a milk truck oh or he was hit by a truck and he was carrying milk jugs. <laughs> and they they like cut up his face and he oh lost gosh. an eye. So he has a glass eye. And he became an artist and a sign painter, even though he only had one eye. And then by the time I was a kid and, you know, he had retired, he was teaching his grandchildren how to paint. Wow! And so there was me and my, and my, uh, cousin, we really had like a knack for it. We had a talent for it. So it was really great to have my grandfather, but he wasn't just a painter. Yeah. He and my grandmother wrote road shows and plays yeah. for the Mormon church, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So so I grew up doing Mormon theater, Mormon dance, Mormon song, Mormon art. That that was yeah. like yeah. the art world to me.
0: So was your grandpa a professional artist?
1: Like Yeah, he did it. I mean, he did it professionally, I would say. Like so back in the day, you know, billboards were hand painted. Right. Oh my gosh. And so that's what he did. And cool. yeah, it was it was cool because he, he did that. He did sign painting and then he really got into painting ducks. <laughs> cool.
0: Cool. Random. So, and yeah. Cool. <laughs> so
1: he, he became one of those like landscape painter painters that he really specialized in ducks. And so then it turned into my family. Like I, I have a lot of rural Utah Mormon family. Yeah. And so he would do a uh, decoys. He would paint decoys. Okay.
0: Yeah. 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 Like f- so that predators don't come into the is that what you mean
1: no like for hunters like he would paint i mean now i'm saying it out loud it sounds super weird but it was just so (laughs) that was grandpa yeah Uh, he had he would get like a wooden cast of a duck shape and then he would carve the feathers and then paint it to look realistic and the idea is hunters use them to um you know bring in larger predators, sure. I guess. so they're think. trying to bring in predators. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, I was thinking more like when you put a thing, like a, like a statue of an owl in your backyard so, like, smaller birds don't run into your windows.
1: I'm sure but people could use it like that. Ducks, I mean,
0: ducks aren't threatening.
1: His became decorative. <laughs> yeah. Like, people would buy them I because love that. they were decorative. He did but...
0: two-dimensional ducks and then moved into three-dimensional ducks. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I love to ask people, like, you know, so there's, there's kind of the question of, like, like was there art in your home like did you have access to paint did you have access to lessons you know whatever but then there's also kind of a question of like what was the what was the creative climate so like in my home you know we had access to a lot of stuff but it was very like there there wasn't really a value in creativity it was like this is going to be a hobby like um it's a lesser endeavor um, so, did, how did you feel? And I, and let me be clear. Like when I'm talking about creativity, I'm not just talking about like the arts. Um, sure.
1: No, I understand.
0: Yeah. So, so, what was the um, what was kind of like the the value system around like these things that you were exploring as a child?
1: Well, like I said, you know, the first artist I ever encountered was probably my grandpa, yeah. and. We saw it as like a hobby, as you said. And I think that there's something to be said about art in general. Like people can be artistic and it's very difficult to make a living or career, especially in, you know, my, my grandfather's time when, yeah, yeah of course everything needed to be hand painted, but it really was, he was a Mormon Bishop. The, yeah. the idea was make money, provide for your family. Right. So for me, when I, you know, I, Was creative at a young age. I don't remember a time when I wasn't drawing, and so that was just kind of the thing that I did. You know, Lindsay was the good artist. Yeah, and that became sort of my my that was an identity. That was
0: kind of an identity early on.
1: Yeah, but but in my community, it meant it meant really only one thing. In the Mormon community, when you grow up, you're supposed to. I mean, we covenant. We make these promises that we're going to use our time, energy, and talent to build up the kingdom of God, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was always understood, and I always understood it to mean that my talents were given to me by God. And so I had to sort of repay them back by using it for good, not evil. Does that make sense? 100%. And I had the same experience. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom had this like set of books and I still have them actually cuz I love them. They were um books from famous painters, so Michelangelo, cool. yeah. Caravaggio, all of these guys. And I would just like look at them as little kids and just go like yeah. just in awe. Of it. And that was really my only window into the outside like world art of art. World. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, I want to also
0: ask about like so I mean we've never met before but like I said I've just been like I've been listening to your podcast um podcasts for um for years now. Um, I started listening to year of polygamy, like when it was pretty much brand new. Um, and like, I read your, I read all the essays that you write. I mean, you're (laughs) like, you're a writer. I don't know that, and and that everyone would think of you that way, but like you 100% are, you write so many words. Um, and it's so clear to me that like, you just have a very creative, um, like you 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 want to look for different perspectives was that something that was always like did that feel inherent or is that something you kind of learned as an adult
1: I think I've learned it through trauma yeah. honestly yeah. I mean I was just a very much optimistic happy-go-lucky Mormon perfectionist child and yeah. so unfortunately my creativity started to express itself in perfectionism yeah. you know I I look back on it now and I was like, oh, you just have some OCD tendencies that you never really knew what that was, yeah. you know, and in my community and where we grew up, it was very sheltered. It was like, we didn't think about mental health. If you went to therapy, it wasn't, it was yeah. because you were seriously messed up and yeah. otherwise you were just choosing, you were making bad choices. And so anything that I did that was sort of counterculture or i don't know provocative was seen as a sin and so it's really hard i think to make good art when you can't take risks at all yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. and i was always i mean that was sort of my creativity was stemmed from always trying to stay in line like you can be creative but make it work so i always found expression like drawing caricatures of my classmates who were running for student body officers for their posters. So they could, you know, like, right. Yeah. I was just always you trying to help people. Helpful,
0: with like practical ways to apply. What about just like privately, like in your mind, like maybe not stuff that you were um, like putting into physical artwork, but like, do you feel like you can trace any of that? Like creative thinking back to like a younger, like your personality when you were younger?
1: I remember as a little girl being in my bedroom, uh, I collected porcelain dolls. Me too. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, I actually, I
0: have them upstairs. <laughs> I
1: just gave them to my daughter. It was like really? a, a I can, handing down. I of- always
0: thought that I would give mine to a daughter, but I am childless. And so I, I have my eyes out like for small children who might love my porcelain doll collection
1: <laughs> my daughter finds them creepy and i was like how dare you mine are, that's um, jessica she's really important mine are all
0: disney figurines so they're oh, the, that's they're cool they're friendly i want to see them
1: okay, okay. i actually want to see them okay um, I, I would spend hours just like rearranging them yeah. and making scenes. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. was kind of, and and when I had like a Barbie dollhouse, I loved decorating the house. Yeah. That's how I would play with Barbies. It was never yeah. about the characters. It was about the space. Me
0: too. Yeah. I've talked about this on this podcast a few times. So anyone who listens is like, li- they're going like, that's what Emily did. But yeah. I'm, and my, my childhood friends would tease me because had these great toys that were like these collections and I'd be like we don't play with those (laughs) like we just we set them up and we look at them did you
1: ever did you ever have like the Christmas nativity and like after your family set it up you'd go and be like this needs to be moved here yeah uh
0: we didn't have a nativity but that's so that is so Yes, that's how I am for sure. Like
1: Yeah, and it was kind of like uh it was kind of a joke, like, Oh, that's what how Lindsay wastes her time or whatever. And yeah. I th- and the reason why I say that is I feel a sort of like small, low grade amount of shame about it still. Hmm. Like there was something weird about a little girl that wants to make scene scenes. You know, yeah. she can just play. She like yeah. wants to stage Like something. it's some
0: kind of neurotic or something.
1: It just felt false in our community, like to, to stage anything, to place anything like it was Uh, a vanity, you know? Interesting. Yeah.
0: I I feel also a little bit of like embarrassment sometimes about the ways that I was really serious as a child, because I was a very serious child. Um, but I don't, I don't, I haven't connected it to any sort of Mormon things. I think I just feel like I think I feel more like it's maybe a gender thing, which is, of course, related. Oh, absolutely. Um, But yeah, like I wasn't supposed to be that serious in those kinds of ways. Or like, I think maybe those kinds of impulses of like organizing maybe felt and continue to feel like executive to me. Yeah. Which maybe feels like a little bit more like something that is supposed to be masculine or something.
1: I, I, for me, it's, it's almost like compulsive. It's like this compulsive need to create. And, and I can see that now. And that sounds like really cool. Like, Oh, I just, wherever I go, I just have to create. Yeah. That's not how it expressed itself as a child. It was just like, why can't this be pretty too? Sure. I see what you mean. It can be functional. And I would almost get uncomfortable in a room if I'm in, in my own spaces, not in like someone else's space, but like, yeah. If I couldn't set it up in a way that felt beautiful to me, if that made sense. I
0: totally get that. Yeah. 100%. I'm with you there.
1: Um, sorry, I just have one
0: more question. What about like, just like, you seem very curious. Did, how did that, I mean, I guess one question is, did you feel curious as a child? And second part of the question, if so, um, like, how did you, how did that manifest when you were little?
1: I remember when I was in sixth grade, uh, my this new girl moved into our Mormon ward, our Mormon congregation. Her, she was Hawaiian. She was from Hawaii. She was tall and brown and beautiful. And of course, we were in sixth grade. We were all, you know, little white Utah Mormon girls, flat chested. Uh still hadn't gone through puberty, and here walks in this woman who's 12 years old, yeah, our age. Yeah. And we were just like, ah, who is this? And she ended up becoming my best friend. Her name's Malia. And Malia was the first one who introduced-I mean, she played Radiohead for me for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, This, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> but I remember kind she of- had these books, these Disney books. I love Disney. And she pulled them out, but they were very um. What's sort of stylized versions. Yeah, and so sure. there was like Sleeping Beauty and they took sort of the angular drawing of that style mm-hmm. and just amplified it. And so cool. she was showing me this and it was it was like the first time my the window opened up. I yeah. had seen something repurposed not in the traditional way and I was, you know, I was just like this oh, is an option. That. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I and so it. so that's kind of Malia, you know, she had was born in Hawaii, and then she had lived in L.A., and so she was very worldly yeah. to, you know, a sixth-grader like me. And so she was constantly introducing me to that kind of stuff. My mom, of course, was like, she's a bad influence. Yeah. What's going on? And so there was—that started this tension of—I felt really drawn to yeah. music. And, and of course, this is in the 90s, so the grunge scene was yeah big. And so, you know, now I'm starting to write poetry, right. and— It's a little darker, of course. You know, reading it now, it's just like your typical silly teenage girl poetry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I I don't want to say silly because I think teenage girls like everything is diminished. If you if you want, you know, if you're a teenage girl and you like something, then we have to make fun of it. Totally. But really, I look back and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels feels dramatic, like a
0: little. I mean, I think I'm saying silly because like I also wrote dramatic poetry as a teenager (laughs) and it feels just like um, trivial a little bit to me now. The types of things I was writing about, like because we didn't
1: know what any
0: of that meant. Exactly. And I feel like I especially like I grew up in, you know, a lot of privilege, I think, and 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 feeling like, oh, this is so dramatic. And it just is like that. That part of it feels silly. Yeah, to no, me I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> like it's embarrassing the level of drama that, you know.
1: But I, I was creative. I mean, I was always finding creative expression. Yeah. I was, we have the reflections contest, yeah. which I did every year and I would like win every year. So I kind of developed this ego around it. Like. Mm. That's just what you do. You enter contests and you win.
0: Yeah. And it didn't
1: become about the art. It was never about the art. It was about the competition and the winning because that's kind of how everyone around me saw it. Yeah. So for me, it was never like create this beautiful composition and, you know, it It was just like make something good and win.
0: Yeah. Maybe this is like a tricky question. You can take a drink if you want to. Like go ahead. Um, I try to think about like what I want to say. Um, Do you ever think it's, you know, when we're like reminiscing about our childhood and kind of doing what ifs, like it's an impossible thing, but I, I do think like our answers and the way we think about it, like tell us something about what we're like as adults. Um, do you ever, do you ever like think about how your creative identity maybe would have developed in different ways had you been in like a different type of environment? Like, is that something that you ever like wrestle with as an adult?
1: I've thought about that just a little bit because I asked that of some of my guests, right, who have been, you know, born into fundamentalism and didn't have the opportunities that I had. I don't think so. I mean, for me, it found expression the way that it found expression. To me, it's just such a part of who I am that it it was bound to come out in whatever way that I was yeah raised and i was raised in mormonism and so it finds expression in mormonism if that makes sense
0: totally i think i mean more like this like the perfectionism and and maybe also like focusing on um winning contests like do you think those things were like a product of the environment or do you think that maybe is like you would that's something you would have kind of had to have like gone through regardless
1: i think perfectionism there's this this sort of string of that that shows up in, in religion, but especially in Mormonism, it's very much encouraged, at least in the generation that I grew up in, you know, it was very appearance based, very performance based. So, sorry. So you have to like perform righteousness, right? So I always talk about this in Mormonism, but like to be a good mormon to be a righteous mormon there's ways that you perform it you put on the costume of church you yeah. everyone knows what the correct costume is right. if someone doesn't dress right then they're sort of an outlier in in these communities and then you know what to say and you know which conversations you don't say so i think that that mindset of like everything is a performance and what you think and feel it doesn't kind of matter. Irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was kind of, you know, how so it absolutely informed my art in that way because it was like, it's about putting out there what is righteous and everything else is a sin. Anything else that you're feeling like is a sin. And um, you know, I was particularly obsessed with I have this talent and I need to use it for God's work. And yeah. I can't do it. Like I I tried to paint Jesus over and over yeah. and over Yeah. and I couldn't do it. He always looked flat and fake and, yeah. and I just thought you ungrateful woman, like God has given you this talent. Why can't you get this right? And and when I would just paint what I wanted to paint, it was yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. But horror, like, I remember, I mean, it's got a, yeah, I hate even characterizing it this way now, but as I started to paint and sort of de- develop a style, it was darker, yeah. I guess, yeah. Than than the Jesus paintings or the Pioneer paintings that our people are supposed to produce, yeah. I just felt shame about that, yeah. I couldn't and quite what, get it right. Like at what age, in your teens? I did my first painting um, that won a competition in seventh grade. Okay, and it was a it was a sunset in the dark. So like as the last burst of light as the yeah. sun is coming out, sure. And it was because it was beautiful visually, um, it worked, but I was so interested in these like dark colors, like blue and cerulean and, and all of these like dark browns those were so beautiful to me. Yeah. And so to me, that's what it was about, but I got lucky because it was still bright enough (laughs) that people were like, Oh, that's good. So seventh grade, I think that's when I started. Um, this is just kind of like
0: maybe a simple yes or no but like was there ever a time when you thought you might like pursue art as a profession
1: yeah when I got in my senior year okay. it, it started because I had won a scholarship I'd won some contests okay I'd been voted best artist yeah <sighs> is there so... anything
0: then like with now that I know that is there anything like in your kind of teen years like I'm I'm really interested in like human development and kind of the ways in which our environment and our personalities kind of like, you know, collide or interact um, to either like allow our creativity to flourish or to stomp it out or to, you know, I just, I'm interested in creativity and I'm interested in like what, like what we can do to like encourage it, um, what we can do to try to avoid, ruining it for people, you know, so for people who have managed to maintain creativity into adulthood, no matter how they're doing it, you know, like no matter how it's coming out, I like to try to trace back like what happened and what kinds of things did you have to like go through or, you know, so is there anything like that, that you feel is significant about your teen years when some of that really important identity development is happening um, like with regards to any sort of creativity, like not necessarily just making art. Um, yeah. Anything that you feel is significant in that, in that, in those years.
1: I mean, this sounds kind of cliche, but pain, <laughs> um, I don't think that's, yeah, no, I don't think that's cliche. I, I, I don't want to romanticize like trauma or, or, you know, neuroses or anything like that because it's not easy, but yeah, I think for me, I mean, my perfectionism really manifested itself in my teenage years, when I was 17, I developed a really bad eating disorder. Like I didn't know that's what it was. I yeah. thought I was sinning, um, cause I was vain because I wanted to be thin. And the reality was, you know, looking back on it, I didn't care about being thin. I just wanted to disappear. I didn't want anyone to see me. Yeah. I didn't like being looked at or talked at. And I was getting a lot of attention. Um, I had a lot of friends and it was just a lot of work to, be social and to be popular and to be good at something. Yeah. And it just started to wear on me. I didn't even have a language for that because that's supposed to be what you want. Yeah. And so when I would sit down and paint, I started doing self-portraits. And around 17, 18, and 19, it's some of the best work I've ever created, honestly, which is what helped get me my scholarship. But they were portraits of myself and they were sort of gaunt and haunting. Yeah. And of course, everyone around me was horrified except for people that knew better, you know, like some art teachers. And, and mm-hmm. so luckily for me, they're like, oh, you need to turn this into a portfolio and let's help you yeah. do something with it. But for me, it was just like, I would look in the mirror and I would paint what I saw. And that felt really good to me. Yeah. But it, it was an extension of this sort of body dysmorphia disorder thing. Yeah.
0: I'm trying to think of what I want to ask. Did you feel like, like, okay, so you you weren't like super like aware of what you were doing. Is that right? It was kind of like. You, I
1: never really had any good formal training. I mean, okay. I, I went to public school. Sure. Art, you know, like that's, that was my I training. I just mean more like you, you it, it was
0: the the making of the paintings was like something that was helpful in some way. Is, is that right? It, I would say it was, it felt inevitable. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think of like what, so again, like, you know, I don't know. I always hope that when I'm talking with my different guests that we'll kind of like, I'm looking for like, maybe like little bits of clues or like wisdom about maybe how these types of lessons like apply to the rest of us or to yeah you know maybe apply to someone but not someone else or you know um and so i'm I'm kind of trying to contextualize like so you so creativity felt inevitable to you which like yes me too and i think it feels that way to a lot of people i've had i have had guests who think it's not like it's some it's something that they have to remember to do or have to remember to value
1: i certainly go through periods like yeah
0: okay So, um, so at that time it was inevitable. And then maybe what I want to understand is like, um, do you have thoughts about like the art teachers who were like, you said something like, except for the people who knew better. I'd like to know more about like what you mean by that. And then I'm, I'm also curious how you like, um, internalized or, or thought about, The types of feedback you are getting from the people who knew better and, like, the people who were scared and didn't or or what.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, and just nudge me in the right direction if if we go. So how I look at art now is, like, you know, in music, for example, you have artists and you have performers and you have some people who are both, right? In art, I think it's kind of the same thing. I learned that most of the technical stuff, I mean, I still have some problems with like perspective, and some of the te- technical parts just don't come naturally to me, right? Like straight lines, <laughs> yeah, geometric shapes. it's all It's all difficult for me. But I could learn it. Like I understood the technical parts that I was taught in art class, you know, picked up on those pretty quickly, and so I understood that. And so in that way, I think people can perform. Right. Like it's not you've got people in, you know, Bangladesh right now who are painting wall art to be sold on Wayfair that you're going to get in the mail. Right. Yeah. And they're not necessarily artists. They they sure. just understand how to make the colors work. So I think that there's that part of it. But there there's this other part, which is the creator. Right. The inventor. Yeah. That kind of more compositional. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, that's learning about history helped me in that aspect because I started to put together the pieces of historic, you know, when we were in history class or reading history books and to my mom's credit, she loves history. Yeah. So I had this lens to be like, Oh, that's what people are doing. When these smart people, they take their ideas and this is how it manifests itself. Yeah. And so I was able to start to understand, Oh, that's what, you know, Picasso was doing the reason, and, you know, understanding how he was not just, he had mastered the technical aspects, right. but he was inventing, right. he was playing, he was being playful right. and he was being, um, political. A lot of artists were, mm-hmm. so that kind of, that was really an interesting idea to me, but it, I didn't feel like I could do that because my, my inventions mm-hmm. didn't match up with my culture. Oh my gosh.
0: Yes. I fully, I fully, I fully am with you. Like I had really, really similar worries and quandaries you know in my late teens and in my early 20s Uh, exactly like the stuff that I'm really drawn to the stuff that I want to make is like meaningful in these bigger contexts and it's like doing something Um, and I felt like as like a little Mormon girl like Mm -hmm. studying so um, my degrees are in jazz history or in jazz performance um, which is you know really political art form and i felt very underqualified to even be like touching that language
1: yeah no i i can cuz there's something radical about political ideas and and especially when you're a mormon girl like you're supposed to if you're doing everything right and i really was trying then you're supposed to be happy. And I sure. wasn't happy. And now, you know, I've got this eating disorder. And it's really like I have no context for it other than I'm in, you know, sinning and I'm vain. And it's creating this huge conflict. And now I have all this pain. And I the only, the only way I could understand it was it was a deficiency. Like yeah. this pain is a deficiency. It's the natural consequence of my vanity. Yeah. Right. And so, but it, anyone that's ever been in sort of this sort of compulsive kind of pain, there's so much energy and Mm -hmm. you have to put it out somewhere. And luckily for me, I was still pushed in the, you know, in the art world. And so I I got a small scholarship to Utah State and I, and that was really great because it was still the Mormon world, like all my professors and teachers, the most, most of them were famous mormon pioneer artist or something
0: it felt kind of like safe like home or something
1: it it just reinforced this idea of this is what a like a successful artist looks like okay Okay. yeah but they were giving us assignments like you know do a self-portrait or you know do this I, i you know if you've done any art courses um just undergrad art courses it was a new way of thinking yeah. about art, and it and yeah. it sort of gave me this n- these new tools to invent. But of course, I'm at Utah State, so I'm creating stuff, and it, it was pretty provocative. Yeah, and I wasn't intentionally trying to be provocative. I just wanted to make something cool. Yeah, you know, and so that that just reinforced my shame. You know, people yeah. would be like, "This is really good," and yeah. why would you do that? Like, why would you make that? Did you feel um Did you feel like it was misunderstood? Or did you
0: feel like the people who are giving you these criticisms were like, right?
1: I felt like they were right. Yeah, for sure. It wasn't like I didn't have the confidence to be like, oh, they just don't get me. I yeah. mean, I remember one assignment in particular, we were supposed to, I'm trying to remember the class now. I want to say it was like a 3D class. So you were an art major. Yeah, no, okay. I had an art scholarship. Okay. I was going to be okay. painting. Okay. Um, and, you know, I really loved that part. But at this point, my eating disorder is just like yeah. raging. And, and I remember they gave us this assignment. It was like this three dimensional portrait or something. And I went to the craft store and I got one of those fake, um, masks, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like a plastic.
1: Yeah. Just like a, like yeah. a plastic mask. And, um, and then I took a mirror and I just shattered it. And so so I'm gluing the pieces around and I'm doing this thing and everyone else is like sculpting out of clay, this nice face. And I'm just doing this and And putting, and it's, and I got to say, like, I was like, this is beautiful. Like, Lindsay, this is beautiful. So I'm feeling really great about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, people started coming in the dorm and looking, they're like, we want to see this. We've heard about this like glass person you're making. yeah And I remember taking it in to class and here I have this mirrored figure. It's like beautiful. It's very showy. It's very, uh, I don't know it's shattered glass yeah and all of everyone else in my class has this you know little like here's a cute this is a portrait of my mom this is you know and I just remember thinking oh no you've embarrassed yourself it's like the person that wears an evening gown to like right you know overdressed or just
0: mismatched I and
1: people were looking at it and and interested in it but I wasn't seeing that as a sign of like you really did something yeah I was just like oh I've done this wrong Mm, again yeah done it wrong again yeah and so that's kind of how I felt yeah you know it was always like there was this moment where everyone would be drawn to it but instead of me seeing that as a sign of success I would be like oh they're drawn to it because it's crazy Yeah. yeah
0: Do you have thoughts in general, like if we're talking kind of just more general, like advice style, do you have, do you have like thoughts about a situation where someone's creativity and someone's like creative expression and creative kind of impulses and creative inevitabilities um, are not like accepted or understood? Like, do you have, do you have advice for like people who have that experience or just thoughts about like what it is or
1: I think it's hard because there's this tension in all intellectual spaces, all political spaces, all artistic spaces, which is what are the parameters to to decide what's legitimate, what's not? What's yeah. good, what's not? What's worth our time, what's not? And so because of that, you get into the, these like forced orthodoxies. So in, in art I encountered, and I have this stigma too kind of within myself, I mean this judgment. I really respect people who understand the technical parts yeah, and the theories yeah. and then are able to like, you know, put them into practice that to me, that's interesting. I'm like, Oh, that's how you were being inventive. But I do think some people just create things without any thought to that and they can make beautiful things. Yeah. There's, there's still this like judgy part of me that's like, Oh, that's yeah. But that, that's about my own, you know, the reinforced just performative shame kind of like
0: things yeah
1: but i also really like smart theories and you know yeah. that's always interesting to me so i would say that people that are creating i mean it makes something that looks beautiful to you yeah
0: and that's always what i think too like if you create something that you would be moved by that's a pretty good like it's a pretty good baseline
1: it's and a, there's it's something to be said about the the process of creation yeah I mean, the, the thing that I struggle with now in just my life in general is, and people will say this, they're like, you're so prolific, you're writing all this stuff, you're doing all this stuff, you produce all this stuff. For me, I don't ever feel done. I feel always hungry, always unsatisfied. And it's because it has been so ingrained in me that it's about the finished product. So I'm like creating something, getting it done creating something, getting it done, getting that sort of dopamine hit of like, okay, I've finished this thing. Yeah. And lately I've been trying to just enjoy the creation process because I've never been allowed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if people have that, if they like just genuinely want to create something, I'm kind of jealous. I think that that's beautiful and and they should foster that because that really is the human experience. Like, do you want your art to hang on someone's wall? Well, if you do, then you have to be able to know the political space of art dealing and getting into that world. Do you want to just create something beautiful because you, or or ugly or find expression? Then you should do that. And yeah. it, I think some of the best art in the world will never, ever see. Yeah. Well, it's a heartbreaking thought, but it's also a fact. Yeah. But it's also beautiful. I mean, yeah. I think about music right now. I, I love music. I love it so much. Music has been a way to engage art safely my whole life yeah and so to think about all the music we have access to like I just I sit there almost every single night and I'm listening to like Billie Holiday and I'm thinking Billie Holiday couldn't have access to all the music I have and I get to hear her and I get to hear you know Rex of Orange County and I get to hear classical music and music from all these other cultures yeah it's so lovely so it is. It's almost optimistic to me to know that out there people are creating totally. all the time. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. It's it's um, it's totally overwhelming
0: and it's it's amazing. Um, I I get feeling like really anxious about that sometimes. Like, what am I not? What am I not finding? Like, what amazing things <laughs> no. am I not finding?
1: I remember reading. There's this really great book by Sherman Alexie, which he's problematic was has multiple allegations in the me too movement but he is a native indigenous author out of seattle and he wrote a book called um the diary of a real life indian or something i can't remember the exact title but he has this whole discourse in there about finding a library and realizing you'll never be able to read all the books in the library and it's just like it's such a tragic yeah but also that's beautiful Just, books. That's just <laughs> like, books yeah and 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 that's the movies that's the why albums. you know art theories and art politics and art markets are important but they do not define yeah. art I mean human art <laughs> is what humans create I couldn't
0: agree more and that's why like I get so onward about creativity because I don't think it's about like the product I mean I I I couldn't be more on one about that. Like the process is the thing that is so important. And I really feel like it's, it's essentially human. Like it's, it's necessary. And you know, I'm, I feel like I have no idea what the, what the reaches of these things are, but I know that they reach. Um, And, and I mean, like, if you are engaged in a creative process, like, and I really think that could be, like I'm drawing, that could be I'm writing music. That could be I'm just reading, but I'm like engaging in my mind in a creative way. Or, you know, whatever. Like, but if you're engaged in a creative process, whether or not anyone ever sees your work, um, that will change your life. Like that will change your life, that will change the way you see other people, that will change the way you talk to people. Um, I don't know. And I think feel like there's something crucial. like
1: deeply resourceful about creativity. Yeah. I mean, and, and mine always comes back to this, this sort of like pioneer heritage narrative that I was given, which was always whenever we went through a hard thing or challenging thing it'd be like, well, our pioneer ancestors well, took do do? two sticks together yeah. and built this kingdom. Yeah. And I like that about my Mormon upbringing. I really yeah. like, I love the challenge of making something from whatever I have. Yeah. And so I've been doing that my entire yeah. life. Yeah, and me too. It's rewarding. I, 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 think I say that's that all rewarding. the time. Like the things, the things that I love about
0: Mormonism still, like the things from, from, um, you know, these cultural theologies. Maybe even like I don't know that they're like even told, Who knows? Theology is complicated. I don't need to say that to you. Um, but the things that I love are like are twofold. I love the idea of agency, like because that is this very like creative, kind of resourceful, kind of like. um... I can steer things like I can make choices. Um, I love that. And I still really feel um, like resonant with that kind of a, of a, of a paradigm. Um, And the other being like this idea of progress, like this kind of like never ending progress, which as we know, can get tricky if we have perfectionism, um, but it's also really creative. And like, what can we
1: do? What can we try? Like, what can we become? What can we? And I, th- I think that for me, the the key there from taking progression into perfectionism and versus like expanding. Yeah, you know, that's that's the key. When you become a perfectionist, it's all about. Sort of performing an orthodoxy, whatever yeah. the orthodoxy is you're attached to in your mind. Yeah. For me, it was Mormon, but it was also, you know, I'd, I believe that my talent meant A, B, and C, and, yeah. and it meant that I had to do things a certain way. And it, that's just, I bumped into reality, right? Yeah. And so if you're progressing, it should be towards an expansive world. And that's what I think. So that's actually not hard to do. Right. <laughs> it means you can explore. I mean, I would just encourage anyone listening that you don't have to go out into the world and have all these things. I grew up in a very sheltered Mormon space, and I was able to create art within my community. Yeah. I, I did it in a podcast form, strangely yep. enough. I mean, I didn't realize that I was creating at the time. Right. But you, it's that's the kind of art we need. We yeah. need the art that tells the story of your uh, development. Yeah, yeah. I I love talking
0: about creativity in non art forms as maybe you can already tell but like yeah creativity in like how you mediate a difficult conversation like creativity in how you think about like how can i talk to this person like how can i think about this problem how can yeah i totally agree like creativity in these kind of just resourceful sort of ways um in these expansive kinds of of practices There's nothing more important, and I almost feel like the arts, like the arts, are
1: like where we practice those skills that we're gonna need, like in non-arts. You know, Um, I uh, to me they're they're so intertwined. I mean,
0: one informs the other. When
1: I I had, you know, I had the scholarship. I basically I was too sick and too depressed, still trying so hard to be a good girl that I basically became so obsessed with food. My whole, everything, you know, became sort of revolved around that. And I stopped going to class. I started failing my classes for the first time in my life. And this was just like reinforcement that I was such a sinner. And eventually I quit school. I I couldn't function. And then I had an opportunity to get married I was only 19, but it was all of a sudden I could be the good girl again, not the failure. Yeah. So I picked that up and then I just went on the Mormon program and I put down any creation. It just died inside of me. And I remember thinking consciously, this part of you has to go now. Really? Because now your job is a mother and a wife. Yeah. And, you know, so now I'm a little Mormon mommy. I'm living in a rural town, Stansbury Park, Utah, and... I would paint murals. I would do posters for Relief Society yeah. activities. Uh, that's it. And during that time that you were still painting murals, like you really felt like that p-
0: creative part of you was was gone.
1: Gone. Not only wow. gone, but like we're going to keep it gone because there's nothing there for you. You felt
0: like a commitment to keeping it gone.
1: It just felt um, like a transgression, honestly. Ugh, like creating so and painting. I hate it. And, and when every once in a while I would try and it would just, everything I would paint was ugly and dark. I, I tried, there's this period of painting and like, I have all these things in my basement of portraits of Jesus. Yeah. You were (laughs) trying so hard to paint Jesus and it just wasn't. And, and and there was also this part of me, like I had failed out of school. I, here I was this, you know, child prodigy artist with nothing to show for it. Yeah. And I just felt like you have wasted this. God's going to take it away. So how did you balance or like, how did you reconcile?
0: I mean, not that you reconciled it, but anyway, how did you deal with this thing of like, I need to keep painting. I need to not lose this talent, but also I need to keep this creative part of me gone.
1: Like, well, it's like like I I said, it came out. I decided, well, I'm only going to use it for good. Yeah. For building God's kingdom. So, like I said, you know, if anyone needed a primary poster, it wasn't enough that they had to be like, let's cut out some paper and glue it on the poster. I was like, no, I will paint it and it will be beautiful. And that that just expresses itself in its own neuroses. And I mean, in our young Utah ward, all the women who I think are creative and gifted. We're facing similar challenges, totally. so it just came out as competitive and it's petty, gr- and totally. You know, I thought I'm being helpful making these posters, but some women were like, "Well, I, I'm not going to put in that work when I do the poster," you yeah. know, and it, so it makes people feel bad. It and is so just perverse toxic. how yeah. it's.
0: I have I've seen that as well. I mean, yeah, as a singer, I so I you know I went to school for music and I have a master's degree in jazz performance, and. I, when I moved to Utah after college, because I didn't grow up here, I grew up in Mesa, which is a super, super Mormon place, but it's not like quite exactly the same flavor as Utah. And then I went to school in Texas in this beautiful, weird little liberal bubble of a, of a place. And I was the only Mormon in my entire degree program. Um, and I was a really committed Mormon, but I got to be really naive about the types of things that the culture would allow. Does that make sense? Like, like I was really, really obedient and I like, you know, I was super involved in like the, the young single adult ward. And I went to institute like, you know, uh, scripture study classes every, every, like most days of the week, like I would go to like the institute and study, you know, the Bible or whatever. (laughs) And then I would go from the like institute building to like a bar and watch jazz um, and like, you know, in te- in, in plenty of cities, you can go to a bar underaged, and just get your hand stamped and I yeah. would listen to jazz. I would go to my scripture study classes and then I would go listen to jazz. And I never had a problem with that because there was no one around to tell me.
1: No, no, no. That, that I, was a problem. I, see, so I, my experience is different in that I never really went out and saw the big, big world, but I remember there were a few times there was a, like, for example, there was this kid in my art class who had like a little bit of a punk Mohawk. Yeah. And so he was already counterculture, and by the way he dressed and talked, I knew. And he like smelled like cigarette smoke, which, yeah. which was so heretical. Yeah. <laughs> and he once invited me to like this like little art cooperative or something, and I went. And I remember feeling so at peace there. Yeah. Uh, but also feeling like it was a sin in the sense that like it wasn't a sin to be there but like I knew that what they were doing it was fine for them but it wasn't okay for me does that make sense totally yeah okay for you not okay for me yeah
0: and I think I didn't have that experience because there just wasn't enough culture like LDS culture around me to even tell I just didn't know you know I moved out there when I was 18 it really was and I look back on it and think like oh my gosh, that couldn't have happened any other way. So I was like <laughs> having these like gorgeous experiences with all kinds of different people. Meanwhile, feeling very certain that like I was as, I was, you know, I was really okay with like my Mormon identity. And then when I moved to Utah, I I got so stressed out like immediately. Um, and I felt like when I would meet new, like my new um, congregation members, I didn't want to tell anybody that I studied music because I knew that there was going to be this like female competition and like, well, I'm a singer too, but I didn't major in it because I did something more practical and I'm going to be a better wife and a better mom than you. Mm-hmm. And it was terrifying. I
1: had so much anxiety about it and still do like I'm, I'm the not. The culture is really, know. really pernicious. I think yeah. the Utah culture for women, I mean, it's pernicious pernicious for men in a different way, but because I always say that because we get power through the men in our lives, proximity yeah. to power in Mormonism, yeah. women's only chance of being successful is through the men that they're yeah. interacting with. Yeah. And so it makes us competitive where there's yeah. only so much soft power to go around. Right. And you have these brilliant women. Like I, I look back on so many women I've worked with who like there was this one woman who was so gifted at decorating her home but because of the culture, like she was gifted at it. Like yeah. it was art. And I remember I loved going over there to see it, but it, what it, how it manifested in this culture was this competitive thing. So now all these other women are trying to do it. Now right. we're doing it at super Jealousy. Saturday. Yeah. And it was just, I saw women in our ward start to develop eating disorders. And I, and I that's when I was like, something's, something's really not wrong. working. Yeah.
0: yeah. I have one more question about this, like kind of, Divorce that you had between, like you were still painting and trying to paint the posters and everything, but then feeling like this other thing you had to keep it gone. Like, what? What do you name that thing? Like the thing that you wanted to get or trying to get rid of? Like, I would just say I remember wasn't saying painting. all the
1: time, "I have a divided heart." Yeah, that's that's how it felt. What I just, what was the other
0: half of it? Like, well.
1: It was loss. It was grief I was feeling. It was, uh, you know, at the time, the story almost becomes more cliche the more I share. But when I was 19 and I got married, I was in love with a different person. He was on a mission. He was kind of more dark and artistic. Yeah. And I just felt like he, I didn't need more of the darkness of my life. And so I married the good Mormon boy. I married a very nice man who was from a rural farming town in Idaho. Art is just not, that's not, not even how part you're of the express. language yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just not even and not to say that they're not creative I see it expressing myself but there's no mechanism like at least I was a city girl you know yeah. in Salt Lake City and so for me it sort of this other person this other relationship became the the what if the great what if sure. and and it almost became this fantasy of another life that I could have okay but because I'm married now, and you're not supposed to think about anything else but what you have, I that was a sin. Okay. So, so
0: the stuff that went away was like anything dark, anything kind of that like passionate,
1: anything that I wanted. Yeah. Okay. And you were still creative, like
0: you could still use this medium of painting, but it it was devoid of all of that
1: yeah, stuff I that mean, you really felt. I moved I by. started doing murals, like really creative murals. That, that I, it's even fun thinking about it, like. One time I painted an octopus over my bathtub for my kids' bathtub, this big, and it was just like a big purple octopus with its tentacles all over the bathtub. It was just awesome. Yeah. And turned the whole bathroom, it looked like you're underwater. It was awesome. And I started doing that and coming, so like, it was really fun for me to talk to young moms who wanted to make their room cool. And they would say, oh, my son really likes basketball. And I was like, sweet, let's cut a basketball in half, mold it to the wall, like it's coming out of the wall. And I love that challenge. Yeah. To so me, that was really, had, you
0: still got to have that. I yeah. did.
1: I, I talk about this story sometimes, but really the, it w- so I'm a stay at home mom. I'm teaching preschool out of my home. Yeah. Uh, because I start to get more liberal, I stand up for a gay man in our neighborhood yeah. and, um, that's a whole other story, but they, you know, women in my stake, you know, turn on me, they pull their kids out of my preschool. Yeah. And so I was looking for jobs. I got, I really liked celebrity gossip at the time, Yeah, which is so funny when you think about like my moral trajectory, like here. like It's so weird. <laughs> I, I get it that like
0: celebrity gossip was like the one, um, yeah, I don't even know if I can say positive, but like the one t- thing that I could have a relationship with my mom about.
1: Okay, where, yeah, like, it we was, didn't fight because yeah. no, we were talking about like, like other people's problems. You can gossip about celebrities because they're worldly and yeah. they deserve it, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I, I was asked to blog for the celebrity gossip blog because I, oh my gosh. I was so like prolific in the community. And I ended up, long story, like editing photos for the paparazzi. <laughs> so okay, I did not know that. They saw that I was a good writer and then they saw that I had a good eye. Did and you know you were a good writer? Like... No. From a young age? Okay. Uh, no. Writing, like, again, I was a painter. Right. That was my thing. That was my only thing. Yeah. That's my whole, like, upbringing. Any other aspects, it was all visual. Okay. That's how it was supposed to manifest sure, itself. Sure, sure.
0: You had, like, made a rule about it in your mind, kind of.
1: And I not and I wouldn't even say I, I thought I had a good eye for things, but there was this man, his name is Brad Elterman. He's a famous 1970s celebrity photographer, and back then... The paparazzi would literally travel with the bands and so brad you know he him and joan jett and madonna he would be in their hotel rooms and traveling with them cool and so he he started something called buzz photo paparazzi as an art form okay. and the idea was we're not going to exploit we're not going to uh put trashy upskirt celebrity shots because at this time this is the britney spears meltdown yeah but his photo had this policy that they wouldn't ever shoot Britney Spears or celebrities, kids without the celebrity. And I just, in that climate, I was like, that's so ethical. That's really, yeah. But his photos really were beautiful and they were iconic. I mean, if you look at Brad Altman, you can see his photos. They're they're beautiful. And so he was like on the board of LACMU and, and all this stuff and doing all these fancy parties. And now I'm just this little stay-at-home mom in Utah editing these photos for him. And cool. When I say editing, it wasn't like... We didn't Photoshop um, or do anything like that. So you I'm were like feeling cropping photos. It or, was like color yeah. correction, okay. and then we partnered with Getty Images, and and so Brad just thought it was adorable and quaint that this like little Mormon mom, and, and this it, was just because you were always commenting on blogs, and I commented. I started following Buzz Photo because I liked their approach. Okay, it was beautiful celebrity photography. Yeah, and. And I think they were new enough, and I was you know like I guess one of their smarter commenters or sure. that they got in touch. yeah, it just cool. kind of it was a weird it's such a weird cool. job. But pretty soon after working in it, the business changed, and, and this was, it, sorry, this was after your preschool kind of fell apart. Because, this was right as it was falling, apart. okay, yeah. yeah, and so they were paying me to do this. I felt of course, sinful about it because it was the world, yeah, <laughs> it's Hollywood. But there's no money. People don't want that. The market didn't want beautiful celebrity photos. They wanted, you know, Britney Spears losing her mind. And so we it started to change. There started to be people coming into that space who we would get photos and then they would want me to Photoshop. And there were these like ethical concerns, but I needed money. And so I was really, really torn by it. And I eventually just parted ways with them. Still in good terms, but paparazzi it changed Instagram, changed the market. But it was really good because I got familiarized with Photoshop yeah. and with you know photography, yeah. which is a medium that I had never engaged right. before. Yeah, but Brad and had, also
0: you're writing more, and I was yeah. writing
1: more. <laughs> I remember one time, mm-hmm. Catherine Heigl, she was smoking a cigarette in a picture, and as a Mormon, if you know, <laughs> Catherine Heigl grew up Mormon. Yeah, and I wrote this post. It was so mean. <laughs> It was like, Uh, it was really snarky and clever, but it was like hypocrite making fun of her being a Mormon and her mom wrote in and was like, she's always been nice to you. This isn't fair. And that was the first time I was like, oh, they're real people, Yeah, you know, but it's
0: really interesting how like you keep, you, we have this kind of story of like, you keep trying so hard to like put these boundaries around your like Mormon life and like, it's just not working.
1: No, no. But I, I mean, it, the problem was always me, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I like, it's not a problem, but yeah, but I know what you mean. Like, I,
0: I think that's inter I think that's what I'm saying. Like, it's kind of an interesting, like, like you said, it's kind of inevitable. Like you have these things that are so like bright and shiny um, and, and like vibrant about you that like were kind of got framed as, bad and dark and whatever. It's just the theme of my life. I, I, I get it. Like, I think I have kind of similar stuff. I think I have similar struggles. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an odd thing to be like, it's, I think, I think I'm, I'm assuming that you've felt the same way as me, which is like, just trying so hard to be so good. And just like,
1: I'm not meaning for these like this is just no it was never that's why i say it was inevitable because like it just kept coming out and i would try to like keep a lid on it you know yeah and and my therapist actually when it because i was in treatment now for the eating disorder and i would come in and i would say i'm changing my clothes like four or five times a day and he was like oh that makes sense that makes sense it's because you're putting a lid on this these other behaviors and he kind of explained it he said picture that you're standing on this floor and from the floor, a fire pops up. And now this part of the floor is on fire and you're like, oh no. So you have to run over and put something over that. Yeah. And now it pops up over here. So you're running up over here and the fire keeps popping up. He said, changing your clothes is trying to put out one of the fires. He said, I'm interested in the fire. You've got this fire down there and it keeps popping up. Let's figure out what that is. And at the time Brad had done some work with a man named Shepard Fairey, who is now a very uh, prominent commercial street artist, but they were screening Exit Through the Gift Shop about okay. Banksy at yeah. Sundance. And our our agency had like a, I can't even remember what it's called now, like one of those salons or booths up there. So I was supposed to go up to Sundance and like interact with these people. And I'd never even seen the movie. So I watched Exit Through the Gift Shop, which is about Banksy. And of course, this was when, before Banksy was like, Making millions Iconic. of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And Shepard Fairy, too. Like, he's now gone and done commercial success with his work. But have you ever watched that show? No. Oh my gosh. I would recommend everyone to it. watch it. Exit through the gift shop. I've definitely heard of it. But I like, as you're saying it, I'm like, I had not
0: put it together that that was about Banksy. I've like heard of it, heard of Banksy. So, yeah. I'll well, and the marketing
1: is really, really brilliant because at the time it was like, did Banksy make this? Right. Is he trolling us at this? And so I was just fascinated with this. I watched it, and then I'm interacting with all these artists. And then Banksy like leaves some art at Sunday, you know, at Sundance somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I just lost my preschool because I had stood up for a man that was gay in our neighborhood who was falsely accused of a crime. And now I'm starting to go through a faith crisis. Yeah. And now we've got our church leaders talking over the pulpit about gay people, things that I know are like factually inaccurate. Yeah. And I just have this conflict and what, how, what I decided to do, this is insane now thinking about it, but I decided that I had to go tag Salt Lake City. I was going to go do some street art. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I, you know, I was in this conflict. I felt like a sinner for standing up for, for, for this gay man. Everyone around me was saying, you know, this is what happens when you stand. This is why you've lost your preschool. This is why you're losing all this business. This is why you're being ostracized. And the pain and the conflict was so strong. The only way I can say it is I went out to the store. I went to Kinko's. I made these big, huge, uh, like, uh, cutouts and templates. And I was going to paint a CTR sign that said G-A-Y, which is not very inventive. But at the time, it seemed very radical. Yeah. And then I had these other things. One was stealing Shepard Fairey's work where he's got, you know, Andre the Giant that says obey, but it was Packer, Elder Packer's face, yeah. one yeah. of our leaders that said obey yeah. and some other really provocative ones. And I hadn't, I'd made them. They were going to be huge. I'd Whoa. staked out these really safe spots. Like one of them was an abandoned building, Yeah. <laughs> like out by Erda,
0: you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah.
1: And my plan was I was going to, I dressed in black. I was going to go spray paint and tag up Salt Lake City because I just felt like this is wrong. Yeah. What they're saying. And I'm the only one that sees it, which is kind of narcissistic. But at the time, like it's, it was my only world
0: ignorant. Yeah. It's, it's not, I I would say it's less narcissistic and more just like you just, it's, you just don't, it's naive.
1: Well, and I I knew now knew that there was this whole art world. And I thought if I'm a sinner, fine, but like I saw what they did to this gay man in my neighborhood. I saw what they did to me because of it. It's wrong. And so I, w- it was just like compulsive. I was gonna do it, yeah. and then my husband found out. <laughs> he like yeah. found all this stuff, and it was like this big secret. Like, what are you doing? Are you oh having a gosh. nervous breakdown? Yeah. Or you're, you're gonna ruin our ki- like. You're a mother. Yeah. And so I felt a lot of shame, and I backed down. And so I, what I did was, I just turned all the the graphics into. Yeah stickers yeah kept them in my purse and then I would stick them in church bathrooms or craft stores (laughs) like it's so dumb thinking about it now but I that was the time that like that was kind of my moment where I was ready to break like something had to give
0: yeah well and and I mean you were talking before about resourcefulness and like that's what that is you know like it might be you might look at it in retrospect and see it being misplaced or something but like being like, okay, stickers. That's. I mean, that's yeah. like.
1: I I remember I'd feel so radical. I'd have like I've got these little like, Obamaized Packer faces that say "obey" because Shepard Fairey did that famous Obama poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and I would have them in my thing. In my purse and I would just go in the bathroom and it would be like, you know, bathrooms are already awkward. You want to be the only one in there. Yeah. And so I'm in there. I'm waiting till people leave. And then I just take out my sticker, put it on the back, run <laughs> yeah. out, you know. <laughs> yeah. And and it seems so dumb. And, and like I, I actually really respect guerrilla street art, guerrilla activism. Yeah. But it really was there was something reckless about it. But I, the only way I can say it is it was completely compulsive. Like, I yeah. saw Banksy. That was, like, the first outlet other than celebrity gossip yeah. that I'd been exposed to. And I was like, well, this is how you have you to were do trying it. trying to figure it out. Yeah. And it wasn't until I started blogging and having that outlet that, that those, you know, compulsions sort of went away and came out in other areas.
0: So when did you start getting into history? You said your mom was into it. But, like, when did you start really kind of digging in?
1: So my mom... Do we have time I, if I'm talking too much? No, I mean it's okay. like a 2 hour podcast but you okay. like okay. Yeah. You just tell me, just coming okay. off when Yeah. So um my mom would dress up as a pioneer. She still does this. She has like period piece clothing. Uh she has this presentation she gives as Betsy Ross. So cool. she has a Betsy Ross dress and she has all the different iterations of the American flag and we would go to scout camps and whatever and Teach people the history of the flag. Yeah, yeah. And she would do that with pioneer stuff too. That's so kind of radical too. Like I'm sure it just didn't. You know, I loved it. Yeah. I know it's such a nerdy, weird thing. And I remember like we would be dressed as pioneers, going to an elementary school to teach them pioneer stick pulling games, and we would have to go get cornbread at the store or something. Yeah. And I was like, oh, everyone thinks we're polygamous. Yeah, <laughs> know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're dressed in pioneer clothes, but. I actually really love that about my mom. My mom is very, it's very cool. smart yeah. and she's clever and she's very creative too. And this is how it found expression. She loved telling the stories of these pioneers. Yeah. And of course it was very heritage based that the sources she was pulling from at the time were very friendly to our history yeah. and, and very, uh, whitewashed, I guess, yeah. you know, Kate Carter yeah. who from the DUP Daughters of Utah Pioneers who deliberately like burned history that she didn't like that's oh where gosh. my mom got her history. And yeah. so, so that's how she expressed her talent Yeah, and we helped her. And so I always had a, an affinity for that. When my mom and my grandma, who's a genealogist, it, that stuff always fascinated me. Like I said, I, history was a way for me to sort of understand why things were the way they were for me. Like, yeah. oh, because the ancestors did this, this is why well, we're like, something we don't think about a lot of how Creative
0: history is like not that it necessarily should be that way, but it it definitely is.
1: Well, I mean, history creates like we inherit whatever they came up with, right? Right. And yeah. so, yeah. So I started blogging at Feminist Mormon Housewives, which it, this was like 2008, I want to say. Yeah. And at the time, blogs were really, really big. Yeah. And I had heard wow. a blogger, the the blog had, was fairly new, just a year or so old. And it was basically just Mormon women who were Democrats, yeah. you know, and I, I, I'm still not a Democrat. I'm just independent, but they were the first people that, that I heard in a safe way speak outside of the orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like, what, you can do that? Yeah. And so I went over same thing with buzz photo I commented they liked my comment they thought it was witty they asked me to write a guest post and pretty soon I was blogging full time and mm-hmm. then I become probably the main blogger at FMH yeah. and and this is this goes through the whole Mormon moment when Mitt Romney is running for president mm-hmm. so all of a sudden we're in the New York Times yeah. we're you know we're getting 10,000 hits a day which for Mormon blogs at the time that was a big deal and it's other women like me and now I'm all of a sudden I'm getting introduced to women who are radical like Kate Kelly who is going to ask for women's ordination and you know wear pants to church day and all these things that seem so naughty it's yeah it's crazy how it's the
0: when you said 2008 I was just like oh my gosh like (laughs) the last like this time period has been, there's been a lot, there's been a lot of stuff.
1: Well, and back then, like back then, so long ago. It feels like a really long time ago. When you left the church back then or questioned the church or doubted, like there were very few resources. I yeah. always say there was like one group of people that met downtown once a year with their fake names, their you know online handles, and their trench coats snuck yeah. in, had it had dinner, and then left. Well, yeah,
0: my my grandmother was in that like kind of secret like Mormon feminist underground. That's
1: I amazing. didn't know about it until like after
0: yeah. I like I started having a, a faith crisis in like 2013, 14. And my mom was like, well, you know, your grandma's one of those Mormon feminists. And I was like, one of those. I was like, what? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, amazing. I didn't know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I think that's so great. And those women, like, they really showed that you could wrestle with the, that tension rather than like bifurcating yourself. Like I sure. thought was the only way. Right. You could reconcile it. It was complicated, but you could yeah. do it. And And I was very interested in that. And so, but it was... I started finding out the history, of uh, the real history, if you will, <laughs> I yeah. hate saying it like that, but like the history I had the, never encountered yeah, about yeah. the church. Yeah. And it, I was really bothered with polygamy. Like I said, I was in love with someone else, not my husband. I would, had tried at this point. It was, I don't know, we'd been married maybe eight, nine years. Um, and I was trying to just love him because he's so lovable. He's very nice. Yeah. yeah not an intellectual, but I just like, there was no reason for me to not be happy. And I wasn't, I just couldn't, couldn't do it. And so to learn about polygamy that Joseph Smith and men like that didn't have to wrestle with that. Yeah, I mean, I tell, I tell this story about, you know, I felt like such a sinner. It was probably six years into my marriage. I, my first year of marriage, you read my diary and it's like, I'm just being challenged. I'm being tried. Like I'm so blessed, but the Satan is trying to tempt me. Yeah. And what it was is I, I just didn't want the life that I was living. Yeah. But I felt like I was wrong. And I finally, I got a calling from our church, which is where they give you like a responsibility. And it was a stake calling, which is kind of a big deal. And the stake first counselor or something called me in to do something with the youth, the young women's on a stake level. And it felt like such an honor but I felt like such a sinner because here I was six years later, still holding on to this other relationship. Yeah, um, Hadn't like ever contacted him or whatever. It was just like this obsession. In your mind. Yeah. So I confessed it to him and I was like, I don't think I'm worthy to have this calling. I, you know, there's this thing I can't get over and I'm crying. And he was the first person I sort of told other than my husband, my husband knew I was always struggling with this. And, I remember him, he got really excited. Like his face changed, his eyes lit up, and he was just like, oh, no, 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 I can help you. I know this. He was like, you're not alone. And it was just like, when you hear that and you're like, I'm not the only one, it's this relief, the shame sort of drips away. And he was like, I have been in your same situation. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, really? Yeah. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what did you do? How did you make sense of it? And he said, well you know, and he's so proud of this. He's so excited. He's like, I just realized the Lord is preparing me. These feelings that I have are preparing me to live polygamy someday. And I remember just like, I I, I always say it was, there's that portrait of Jesus in his red coat hung up behind him in the office. And that's, I remember him saying that as I look at the red, that's all I can remember seeing. And I remember thinking, how does this help me? no yeah like I don't get to do that yeah I don't have to like and he it didn't even occur to him yeah that like that doesn't apply to me and so sick it just made this it just like something truly broke it's like if you have this you know disco ball hanging up Mm -hmm. of hope it just dropped yeah and I think that that's kind of what changed for me. And so polygamy really bothered me, the inequity of it, yeah. the blind inequity, like that men just like that couldn't yeah, right. see how that just, wounded me.
0: There's just not even a, a, a empathy at all. Not even like, yeah. A I mean, it.
1: it's one thing that it's like this doctrine that we have to contend yeah. and live with. It's another thing to not even recognize yeah. the pain that, or, or, or just the imbalance of his experience versus mine. Right. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I got into history. So I started looking into it and I found liberation through history because the more I studied about polygamy, the more I realized like, oh, this isn't me feeling bad things about it. It's just bad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. There are problems for it. And I'm not the only one that feels this way. Yeah. So I started blogging about the wives of Joseph Smith and then it turned into this podcast and that became a, a really huge place of my expression for a long time. Yeah.
0: I remember like I cuz I think I was I was pretty much listening to it in real time um as you were releasing the episodes. I maybe started when you were like 20 episodes in or something like that. And just all those early episodes are so terrible. Well just, uh, well no, they're not, but just just hearing how you got more conviction about it like as you went <laughs> through. Um yeah, and and you you are prolific and have done so much and have just created so much and I feel like you know, I'm surprised to hear that like you struggle to like focus on the process because like I'm I I'm surprised to hear that you that you fixate on a product because you seem to be in process like so <laughs>
1: much. I I think there's this compulsive, I keep using that word, but that's the best word I can to describe it. Idea about industry in Mormonism. Like yeah. it's so ingrained that we are I mean, I live in the beehive state, yeah, and we're a beehive, Busy little worker bees. Yeah, exactly, yeah. it symbolizes that. And I took that stuff very seriously. Plus, I don't think we can discount the the impact of Mormon iconography on like the artist psyche. Like, I'm around symbols and metaphors all the time that are about producing, yeah, and you know, obedience. Yeah. And so that is that just forms my aesthetic to just yeah. completely. And so, yeah, it really is about – here's how it would feel with a podcast. So I would be researching an episode and f- finally get the shape of the story. And I like I look back, and I don't know how I put out that much work because it yeah. really is – it really is like a wonder. I can't imagine – I mean, this podcast is a ton of work, and there's
0: no research. Like, <laughs> I, I can't – I mean – I can't fathom how much work that, it that was, is and it was. It was
1: an obsession for sure. And and I, I've seen this happen like when a lot of people question, they go through the, I call it the ex-Mormon dive where you're like, yeah. you know, furiously reach, researching things. Yeah. But for me, because I had already had this sort of, I don't know, tools to tell a story, to put it together, or whatever. Yeah. I was able to do that, but it almost, I would say, I felt pregnant with it. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. you have this episode and I would record it and now all of a sudden I'm like nine months pregnant with it yes. and I have to get it out yeah,
0: or I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. I totally know that feeling. I've never heard anybody describe it like that, but like, I get that. I yeah, get no, that. <laughs>
1: it's, it's like you're pregnant with your, with your work. Like yeah. that's, I, I don't mean to like exclude, you know, people who haven't had children in the process or men or something, um. Well, I, I haven't had
0: children and I get that. So it's,
1: to me, it's like the <laughs> yeah. same thing. Yeah. It's like, get this thing out yeah. of me. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. done. And so there's something rewarding for that yeah. for me. And like I said, it's probably just like the dopamine hit of like, yeah. good little beehive worker, you got yeah. this done. And the the downside to that is I'll I'm sloppy. Like, so we'll we'll talk about this for a minute, but I'm constantly constantly like working it's just uh, how I work it's like people sometimes people have said do you think maybe you're bipolar and you're just manic I'm like if I'm manic all the time yeah yeah.
0: I think I'm like that too like yeah always for the projects can you be
1: simultaneously depressed and super high functioning at the time because that's kind of what it is yeah and um I I just think, honestly, it's a coping mechanism. Like it's, I, I cope with work. Sometimes it's an unhealthy amount, but I, I think that there's something to be said about the way that Mormonism produces that, but there's a shadow side to that work ethic. It's painful. It's exhausting. Um, and for me, it just came out and I got sloppy. Like, so I was writing this history and putting all this stuff out and I'm, and at the time i'm putting citations my podcast has footnotes yeah. it wasn't an academic but i knew enough to know that in mormonism you have to get your sources right yeah like that was important to me but you know some mormon academics who were threatened by my work uh who just saw me as this young dumb mom from stansbury park with the you know yeah. blonde hair and chew chew her gum they drinks her diet coke drinks her diet coke <laughs> she has a baby on her lap she knows nothing of the world which is absolutely accurate they went through and like doxed me they they transcribed. There was a group of women um who considered themselves to be mormon intellectuals who felt it was their duty to like show that how sloppy i was that yeah. this wasn't real academic work and they mailed anonymous letters to every history department in utah every news agency and it was mortifying to me because yeah. I believed them I was like oh how could you be so sloppy to like bring this ire on yourself yeah and then we realized that the transcripts were doctored and it was just like a personal vendetta and oh I, now gosh. I realize that people just when you're in this space and you're challenging these norms yeah it attracts it's gonna
0: people are gonna people come, come who after you. yeah
1: who are yeah. struggling or yeah. unwell or whatever so but at the time I thought, My gosh, it's just me again. Like I'm out of my lane. I was never trying to be an academic. And I think the podcast shows, like, you know. I love it. I mean, I think it's
0: lovely that it's like it's really honest. Like it it seems like you're not trying to do anything other than what you're just doing.
1: Well, and and the beauty of it is I'm not an academic, but I have such an appreciation for the academy and for scholars. So my podcast allows me to interact with scholars and amplify their work. Right. Uh but you know, that experience of being doxed, being sloppy has made me realize like sometimes it's not all about just getting the thing done. You have yeah. to like focus and do things well. And so that's kind of the maturity that I've developed over yeah. I don't know the last few years is let's spend more time on stuff. Let's yeah. slow down this sort of like yeah, frenetic desire just yeah. to get something out there and let's do it well.
0: Well, this is a perfect segue to I have of like three last questions that I want to ask you. And the first is I, f- I feel like, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm like projecting. Cause you know, we, like I said, I've been listening to your work for a long time and we're just meeting today. Um, but I feel like during that whole period and like from kind of when you started the podcast until now, like you've been creating yourself, you've been creating, like you've, you've been really creative about like what parts of yourself you're developing, giving time for and giving space for And I, I don't know that I have a question other than like, just what, what has that been like? Has that felt
1: creative to you? It's been, I mean, I think this is what liberation looks like. I'm not trying to say that in a, in a sort of arrogant way. I, because, you know, everyone's like thinking that they're enlightened all the time, every time they learn something new, but that is, that's, that's liberation is expansion. And the podcast, what it did is it broke my world to pieces. It, it put me out in a public sphere. I was so naive about it. I was so compulsive about it that it brought a lot of criticism my way. It, it ruined my family. It turned people against me. They thought I was an apostate. They thought I was evil. They thought I was weird. I mean, I have a whole podcast on polygamy. That's weird. Yeah. That's like not a normal thing. That's yeah. not something normal people do. It's pretty cool, though. It, but it, it also allowed me to engage my community faithfully Yeah, in I mean, a way that, like, I, you know, fundamentalist, I was thinking about this last night, I hang out with a lot of different Mormon groups no. now. They're trying to get Lindsay's coffee. You can have it, baby. <laughs> Bear, it's no. a sin. No, no, no. But, um, he's from Florida. (laughs) Oh, so you've been sent in a long time. I,
0: his whole, he was, his industry was gambling. Oh yeah. He's,
1: he he can share a cigar with me later. Yeah. (laughs) We can play poker. No, I just, I interact with, uh, Mormon fundamentalists and all these like marginalized Mormon spaces and, some of them are more uh, open-minded yeah. and less judgmental than my own people. And so I be, I'm able to speak a common faith language that I'm comfortable in, which is Mormonism. But, I'm, but everyone knows now that I'm the liberal apostate, the, the sinner, the extremist. And I'm quite comfortable. I always tell my FLDS, who, you know, they're the yeah. Warren Jeffs group, I'm not a celestial Mormon. Yeah. You're a celestial Mormon. yeah. I'm I am a terrestrial, that. uh, yeah. Christine Marie Caddish, she's lives down there. She's an activist down in FLDS and she kind of taught me that little turn of phrase where I, yeah, why would we want that? That's not who I am. I'm not going to the social kingdom. I couldn't, I couldn't agree. I couldn't feel more. Their in art line with is that. bad. I yeah. don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, it, it has, it it's such a beautiful thing that you do. Like, I mean, if I can just say, you know, some a lot of my listeners are probably LDS or have been, and and probably a lot of listeners are never have been because they're people that I know from other places or you know, um. But yeah, Lindsay, I'll just say, like, you know, you you tread this beautiful line. Like, you still are a part of the like you haven't you're not an ex Mormon and like in like yeah. a, this traditional way. Like, you sometimes get flack from people who think you should like leave um officially and like officially cut a tie um you you have you have a a piece of your heart in in that community you definitely have like a a place in the ex-mormon community like even if that's not how you kind of identify you're in the fundamentalist community um and it 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 seems to me like the year of polygamy podcast like Unra- un, 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 not unraveled, unspooled, as like this, this creative act that like lets you be in all mm-hmm. of these places, which seems like, yeah, I mean, it just seems like you are creating, like, you're creating an environment or something. Like, I don't know what the noun should be. For I, I would say, this like, person that you when I are say so it's good at being,
1: like, yeah. the the liberation part comes with. There's something to be said about being the the outcast. I mean, I had a community in Sansbury Park that had been my only community, my Mormon community, turn on me in a pretty public yeah. way, which was so it was the biggest, most painful gift I ever got because before it was all about performance and perfectionism and hitting these sort of outward signals, right yeah. Like we all know how to signal in Mormonism, we all know what a perfect, Modest outfit looks like, and if you're not modest, that's a signal that you're not righteous. Yeah. I was so obsessed with that, and and this, I didn't have a choice. Like yeah. now, I'm the lowest of the low. There's something liberating about being the weirdo. Yeah, then you get to make choices that aren't informed by. You can't by... fall any lower. Yeah. yeah. Like there's no, I mean, you've hit the bottom, and so that's what I really like about fundamentalist spaces, because they're the weirdos and they know it, and they mm. find pride in it and so there's something and I I don't want to glorify or romanticize some of these communities because there's a lot of abuse there's a lot of coercion and control and that's you know the work that I do now is trying to help help with that but there's something liberating about people who I mean FLDS women taught me this the ones that are always in their prairie dresses yeah as a woman like me who was all it was all about you know be skinny be pretty be cute you know go be the right kind of
0: productive look like this
1: perfect Pinterest Mormon sure you talk to these FLDS women who are used to being stared at in Costco all the time they just don't have that because they're they have some resiliency around being the the weirdo yeah and and that's the risk that I think that I'm taking with anything I'm producing now because it in some ways in my own community it's marginalized it's um heretical it's it's radical, but in the larger community it's just interesting. People are like, "Oh, yeah. look at that little Mormon right, housewife right. doing." And I think it's that tension that I that I walk in um works so well because it's just honest. Yeah. I mean, I'm I've Mormonism has been my entire world it always has been yeah. and it still is. Yeah. And that's kind of sad, you know, from an outside perspective. It's great. Yeah. But it's 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 where I've been placed. It's yeah. my Lens. So I've mentioned it a couple of times, but I mean, I
0: just, I see you, Lindsay, commenting on things in the world, like, you know, always, you always are, you're always writing these gorgeous essays, just like, hey, it's Tuesday morning, here's this beautiful piece of writing. Um, And you have such a creative mind about things. And when I say that, I mean, like, just even before, like you were, you know, you're talking about... This, these kind of things that are beautiful about these fundamentalist women and then also saying like, I don't want to glorify certain things because there's a lot of abuse. Like just your ability to see these dualities and, and not even just like pluralities, you know, like seeing all these different ways. Like I see that as like, I see that as kind of like the pinnacle of creative values in place. Um, and it seems really natural to you and you speak about it so naturally. And I just... I would be, I would regret it if I didn't just ask, like, what does that feel like from you? And like, is there anything you want to say about like, I don't know, like what it means to you to see these kinds of pluralities and like, whether that feels like part of your creative
1: identity and what you want people to think about it. Well, thank you. That was a lot of nice things you just said, but I, I would say, I mean, it's, it's always hard talking about art because I remember hearing artists talk about their work and it just felt so inaccessible to me, like it was so elitist, and I'll never be that. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that to discourage anyone because, you know, I run a Mormon nonprofit. Our our theme is there's more than one way to Mormon at yeah. Sunstone, which is the the nonprofit that I run. And the idea is there's more than one way to do this. So I would say there's more than one way to artist, right? You can yeah. you can do that, but for me, I found. The truth I found was in the paradox itself, this bifurcation that I felt to cut off this part of myself. I've seen that happen with so many of the most creative Mormons, and it's always usually this paradox. It's uh, the trans-Mormon who has cut off this part of themselves, this identity. It's this, you know, it's... I remember talking to Tyler Glenn from The Man Trees. We went to London together, and he talked about when he was closeted he he just cut it off it still existed but it was like that divided heart Mm. and I don't want to say my experience is like being that of a gay Mormon because I had different challenges than than theirs and (laughs) that that's a hard thing but I have seen that paradox that tension create some of the most beautiful art in people that I that I'll ever know and so to me I think that that's the gift of this Mormon community that's the gift of orthodoxy is that struggle to belong and to not belong at the same time. Yeah. And that's the risk that you take when you create, yeah. because, like I said, you can create I could create a beautiful piece to put on anyone's wall. yeah, but that's not necessarily my best work, yeah, you know, even even if it appeals to someone else, it's not the best work. My best work is when I'm expressing the tension that I'm feeling in a new way when I'm finding a new inventive outlet yeah. for yeah. my pain. Yeah. And, and even if that's like right now, I'm just, it's been a hard, hard year and I'm just decorating my house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, I'm, I've figured out how to use a saw and I'm just going crazy with the yeah. molding. Yeah. And cool to me, that's, that's the art that matters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I could, I really agree. And and I feel like it's art that lives first in your mind. I mean, maybe this is just, this is just me talking now, but yeah, I mean, I think when you believe that that when you believe that that duality is ever ever present, um or plurality and you've seen enough of it in your life to know that it's probably there, you get a lot better at seeing it. You get better at looking for it, you get better at seeing it, you get better at wrestling with it, you get better at talking about it, you get read, you get better at uh reconciling it, and that doesn't mean you put it back together. It means you just you get better at kind of like letting there be these pluralities. And I think that is a really artful thing. And I think it's something that we could all stand to
1: have a little more. Of. And and in Mormonism, it's so, it's so ripe with these opportunities. I remember, so Sun, Sun is a nonprofit that I've run. It's been around for like 45 years, and now I'm in charge of it. And it's basically an open forum to discuss Mormon art, literature, history, scholarship, all of it, mental health. It's great. So I get to interact with all kinds of Things in Mormonism. And I remember Eric Samuelson. He's a playwright who passed away recently. He's a brilliant Mormon playwright. And he screened one of his plays at Sunstone, and it was taking on the perspective of the creation of Adam and Eve, but with Satan, you know, Lucifer as a good guy. Cool. And it was so radical to me at the time, you know, but I, I think about that all the time. I think about this idea of. The things that we have made the villains in society, like, why don't we play around with that a little bit? You know, fundamentalists in these communities as an LDS girl in the Wasatch front, they were the sinners. They were the weirdos. They were the crazy people. And now engaging them, I get to see my own faith tradition that way. No, wait, we're the sinners to the FLDS. We're the crazy people. Yeah. And that's such a liberating gift to be wrong all the time. Totally, yes, and it doesn't have to be something
0: scary. I mean, you can always go back and be like, "I I like the way I thought about it." You know, like uh, there's you don't take a risk. I mean, depending on how what your values are, I guess there's no risk in like looking. There's no risk in like what can I see here? Like you said, like play around, like what if I, what if I'm wrong? Like, what if I, what if I'm the bad guy in this situation? Or what if there's no bad guy? You know, just, yeah. It's and such and important I just stuff this, to think about. like
1: little Mormon girl sitting inside her, her home on the prairie, looking out the window. If that's all you ever do is sit on that side of the window, you think that's what the world looks like. Yeah but on the other side looking in you would say oh that's what her life looks like yeah. and i think changing the lens is just one of the easiest ways yeah. to engage yeah. perspective Curi- you call it curiosity i think it i think there is a curiosity about it with me but also i i think that i'm it's not natural curiosity it's the the deliberate intention to never be defined yeah by a dogma right. in the same way again. You're right. It's it's a practice. Yeah, it's a it's practice, and totally, and when I meet these people, like I'll meet, you know, people who have some of the strangest beliefs, and and I always try to meet them first where they're at. Yeah. Take them at their word for it. It's a beautiful exercise. It's really, for lack of a
0: better word, like it's productive. Like you just it's, learn it a can lot. Be dangerous.
1: I've learned yeah. about that. You know, I was a really naive Mormon girl. I've had to learn a lot about boundaries in the last sure. couple of years because yeah. I'm like you know, when you kind of realize that the, the church orthodoxy is dangerous, then then there's this other side where you're like, well, then there are no rules and all church rules are wrong. And I don't think that that's the way to engage. So I've learned sure. that, you know, I can be curious and then I, but also uh, boundary about yeah. stuff. And I think that that's where we get this tension of being a performer and an artist, like performers know the limits. They know the technical parts they know. It's true. And there's something like, that's why I think that's an important part too. If like you are in a discipline. place where you can learn yeah. the discipline, that's yeah. right. That there's something beautiful about the theories too, yeah. and they shouldn't be thrown away. It's yeah, just like the orthodoxy to them. It's a, del- a, a delicate
0: them. dance of like kind of the reckless abandon of creativity and like a discipline. Yeah, it's, Yeah. It's and stressful. as
1: long as it doesn't become a dogma or an orthodoxy, yeah. Then I think it can be beautiful. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just stagnant. Yeah, just like faith. Amen. Well, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that you're getting back into your painting and drawing. <laughs> what do you want to say about it? Yeah, I feel weird talking about it because I haven't really done anything. I've had it's it's weird because I had someone like a pretty big dealer like you know hit me up about possibly doing a show. Cool. But I don't even have a portfolio. Yeah. You know, my portfolio is like me talking on the internet. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I It's a I, great pro- It's a great portfolio <laughs> Thank you But yeah
0: Maybe it doesn't go in a gallery But it's a great portfolio Well
1: I I am writing I've been asked to write A biography About Juanita Brooks For yeah. Signature Books And the the manuscript is done But it's going to be like I mean With this particular publisher They're very thorough Which is great For someone like me They it's going to take like two or three years before the book is out, but it's it's about the biography of Juanita Brooks. And she was a Mormon historian who wrote about Mountain Meadows Massacre in the first big way, really. And it's all about new Mormon history, but it's it's broader than just a Mormon audience. It's about the writing of the West. You know, Okay. And so I'm writing it and I'm falling in love with this period of history. Juanita Brooks was born at the turn of the century. You know, she was around, she published her book in 1950 and it's this sort of new intellectual awakening and in, in just in Western culture and I've fallen in love with it. And, and at the same time I'm down, I've now have another nonprofit where we go in and help these, the FLDS, fundamentalist Communities, um, rebuild their town after, after what Warren Jeffs has done. So I spend a lot of time in Southern Utah, which is where Juanita was from. So I've kind of had this love affair with, I've always had this love affair with the West, but I'm definitely crushing on Southern Utah yeah, right now. Yeah. So I've been painting Juanita Brooks. It's cool. just for no other reason other than I feel like I'm learning her so well. You get to
0: yeah, yeah, and I there's something
1: you yeah. know, you yeah. get to know someone through yeah. painting their portrait, mm-hmm. and so I've I just started doing that, and it it brought a lot of attention already. So now I ha- so now we're you know kicking around this idea of doing a Juanita Brooks sort of New Mormon History art show. Cool in conjunction. So we'll see where it goes. That's I, awesome. I've never really done anything like that since well, I was little, but I'm proud of you. Thank you. It's really cool. It feels. It feels scary because again, now here I am sort of this little country bumpkin in the outside world again. I think it's great. And yeah, I,
0: you know, I always think of you as a creative because of the way that you just like dive right into these pluralities. Like I've been saying, like it just, it really does feel like the, um, the ultimate creative expression to me. Like that's, that's my own, how I think about creativity and you're, you're there, you're, you live in it. Um, But, yeah, I've I've been thinking since I started this podcast, you know, two years ago, like, Lindsay Hansen Park is, like, such a person that I want to have a conversation with about these things. And I didn't know that you did, like, uh, art, like visual (laughs) art. And then you posted something, and I was like, oh, my gosh, well, I'm going to message her right now. No, (laughs) that was
1: really fun. It's fun to talk about art because, you know. I haven't been in that world for so long. It was my identity for so long. Yeah. And then it just disappeared. It's weird though. Like the lines are
0: so blurry. Like you said, like you have been in it. You have been creative. You've been building a perspective and building like, I mean, you've been doing all of this work. It just hasn't been like in that medium. So yeah, no, it's exciting. I think you're right. Like
1: I, I really think an artist, the word artist applies to any creator, any content creator. Yeah. Because I have seen it now, you know, we're working on some script writing, like I've got all these projects going, I'm co producing this other podcast for a big outlet that I can't talk about yet. But seeing the the process yeah. of these professional writers and podcasters, like, it is art for sure. And there's different technical boundaries and, and things like that. But I will maintain good art takes risks. Good art uh, explores tension. And I think Good art understands what tools are available, and then sees how they can mess that up yeah, a little yeah. bit. Totally. And so you can do that anywhere. Yeah. You can do that at your job. It, you can do that in, in your, your home. Yeah. Totally. It.
0: You could do it. You in could your do it parenting. when you're cooking
1: dinner. Yep. You know. I talk
0: about that all the time. Yeah. So totally.
1: I so that to me, I've I've learned to. It's been an interesting process now to start engaging my creativity without the shame attached to yeah, it. Yeah, that's awesome. So we'll see how that goes. I can't
0: wait. <laughs> um, okay, I always ask everybody at the very end, on this day, what's your dream collaboration? You can have anybody. Taylor Swift,
1: does that count? Yeah, I'm such sure. a basic white girl. It's like a Taylor <laughs> Swift.
0: You want to do a, a collaboration with Taylor Swift and, um, and one of our Mormon foremothers?
1: I mean... Honestly, nothing, like something we, you Juanita mix. Brooks, I, I'm telling you, it's it. This is bad news for a biographer to fall in love with a subject. Although I hear, I find that happens all the time. Part of my my issue with her is I I also believe good art is redemptive. Like it gives yeah. a redemption to anything. Yeah. And Juanita Brooks always felt like she was ugly, mm. her whole life. Mm. And so I get to now paint her as I see her, yeah. the beauty that she embodies. I love that. So, yeah, I collaborate I feel like I'm collaborating with her her in history but there are so many cool people that I admire that I would like to um I don't know I I think I'm content in that I just like to watch what people do yeah I feel the same way that's why I have this podcast because I just like talking
0: with like what's what are you working on what's going on with you how how does your beautiful mind work um okay Lindsay thank you so much will you tell everybody where to find your work
1: sure uh so you can always find our Mormon stuff at sunsun.org. We have a conference at the end of the uh, July every year where there's more than one way to Mormon. We, it's one of the few spaces I know of that interacts with very, very extreme fundamentalists and very, very liberal or ex-Mormon atheists and everything in between. Cool. Um, I have a podcast at com which we're winding down on, which, you know, was kind of what's set me on this platform and then, yeah, right now I'm just, I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on Twitter very much. I'm on Facebook, which, whatever, uh, makes me an old lady. But <laughs> yeah. I, can, I don't have time to manage all these other <laughs> social media accounts.
0: We're, we're from the Facebook generation and it just is what it is. I feel the same way.
1: And you can find, like, I've written for, you know, several publications or whatever. You can find that. Just Google it, I guess.
0: Great. Lindsay, thank you so much. I really have enjoyed talking with you.
1: Thanks for having me. Yes. This was fun. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our
0: theme song is As You Are from my album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel and ad segment music by Jerem Hansen. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, please send me a note through my website, emvocals.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.